Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now, and we're going to turn to the book of Exodus. We're reading this morning from Exodus 17 and 18. Uh, You'll find our reading on pages 59 and 60 of the Pew Bibles, pages 59 and 60. Our reading is beginning in verse 8 of Exodus 17, and we're reading down to verse 12 of chapter 18. So really, the second half of of chapter 17 and the first half of chapter 18. So Exodus 17, beginning at verse 8, and this is God's word to us. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of, the, the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought them out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the, from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Well, you'll find it immensely helpful to turn back to Exodus 17 and 18 just now. We're going to think about the verses that we read 
a few moments ago. Uh, you'll find it on pages 59 and 60 uh, of the Pew Bibles. Uh, and as you're perhaps turning that passage up, uh, let's pray briefly together for a moment. Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. It's, it, your word itself tells us that it is like a double-edged sword. And we pray that as we come to it this morning, that you would help us to understand it, that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, and that you would help us to see that there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, before studying for ministry, uh, I studied journalism with history at the University of Ulster in Coleraine. Uh, one of the practical parts of the journalism course was that we had to spend some time learning what it was like to write court reports. So if you read the Ballymena Guardian, you'll see all sorts of court reports for driving offences and other low-level crimes. Uh, as part of learning the art of court reports, we went to Coleraine Magistrates Court to sit in on some cases and then write a report about one that we had heard. I remember the visit to court because of a slightly awkward situation I found myself in. I mentioned an awkward situation last week. Here's another one. Uh, on the day we were supposed to go to court as a class, my car was out of action. I had a flat tire and the car was stuck until I had got it sorted. So instead of driving to court myself, I had to get a taxi. So I ordered the taxi, it arrived, and I hopped in, bounced in, and told the driver where I needed to go. Coleraine magistrate's court. Now he didn't say much when I told him my destination. In fact, for the first half of the journey, he didn't say anything. And all I got was this slightly suspicious sidewards glance when I told him where I needed to go. S sensing the slight tension and realizing that having told him that I needed to go to court, he probably thought that I was up in court, I decided to try and explain myself. I gave him a fairly wordy explanation of what I was doing and he just said, oh, all right, right. And I could tell that he was sort of thinking, that's what they all say. Anyway, I got to court, was able to sit in on a session and then write my report. It was all very interesting. But we've all seen courts depicted on TV. And what you often have are the two sides. There's the prosecution and there's the defense, both appealing to the judge. The prosecution bring the case against someone and the defense represent the accused. So far in our series on Exodus, we've been saying that this book is the gospel in the Old Testament. And we're going to see that very clearly again this morning. And here's how. The gospel tells us that the separation between God and man is far too terrible to be solved by those who caused it. We can't navigate or negotiate our way back into God's good books. We need someone who is willing and able to represent us before God to plead our case on our behalf. We need a mediator. And what the gospel tells us is that Jesus is that mediator. Our very deliberate call to worship this morning was 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Well, what that verse reminds us of is that Jesus stands between the convicts and the judge to plead their case, to insist upon their innocence, and to demand that he has already paid their ransom. Now, the New Testament reveals to us that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. The author of Hebrews uses that phrase a couple of times in his letter. But in the Old Testament, we have types and shadows of the mediator who is to come. 
Different people in the story of the Old Testament stand in the gap for God's people, so to speak. They stand between the people of God and God himself and plead the people's case. The story that we have in front of us this morning is perhaps the best example of that happening in the Old Testament. In Exodus 17 and 18, we see Moses taking on the role of mediator and in doing so, he points us forward to our perfect, our spotless, our only mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do this morning is tease out how Moses is the mediator for God's people, but, but also how he points us forward to Jesus. We, we've got three points this morning, and they're going to come up on the screen as we move through them. We're going to see the mediator whose work secures victory for God's people, the mediator whose work invites outsiders to come in, and the mediator whose work divides people into two camps. Let's first of all think about the mediator whose work secures victory for God's people. As we know, life for the Israelites has been a bit up and down recently. They have been miraculously delivered out of Egypt by God. They have miraculously crossed the Red Sea. But following their departure from Egypt, they faced a series of tests. The people were faced with food and water shortages, and they grumbled and complained, but God was faithful to them and provided them with everything that they needed. In 17.8, we read of Israel facing another test. A foreign enemy, the Amalekites, wage war on Israel. It's important to see from verse 8 that the Amalekites provoke the battle. They engage Israel in a fight. And what we're told about next is how Israel prevail in battle. Joshua is mentioned a few times, and this is the first reference to him in the Bible. But Moses is the main character, and we're told that he does something very specific while the battle is raging. Look at verses 11 to 13. It says, Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and another on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now classically, th th this story has been interpreted as reminding us of the, of the importance of prayer. The thinking goes that while Moses prays on the mountain, the battle goes well. But actually, there's no reference to prayer in this section. Moses doesn't say that he's going to pray in verse 9. Instead, he says that he will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Well, what's interesting about verses 11 to 13 is that the word hand appears in both the singular and the plural. So verse 11, Moses' hand grows weary. That's because he's holding the staff in one hand. And then in verse 12, his hands grow weary, and that's because he's holding the staff with two hands. So this section is not primarily telling us about the importance of prayer meetings. We, we know from other parts of the Bible that they're very, very important. It's primarily showing us, though, God's power in the victory. Aaron and Hur come and help Moses, and verse 13 simply tells us that Joshua and his fighting men defeat their enemies. What's happening here is that Moses is God's mediator and God is working through him to secure victory for his people. Now it's worth saying a little bit more about the, uh, about the Amalekites. A year after this attack, the Amale Amalekites attack Israel again, but this time in alliance with the Canaanites. 
The Amalekites were part of the reason why the people turned back from entering the promised land, which led to a whole generation dying in the wilderness. And we read about all of that in the book of Numbers. Uh, The Amalekites also went on to oppose God's people when they were in the land, and you can read about that in the book of Judges. So there's this long-running tension between Israel and the Amalekites. The Amalekites were descended from Amalek, a grandson of Esau. The Israelites were descended from Jacob, who was also called Israel, and he was the brother of Esau. Exodus 17 is just the latest manifestation of an ancient fight between Esau and Jacob, But a mediator stands in on behalf of the people and secures victory for them. The victory comes through the judgment of the Amalekites. We've highlighted that Moses goes to the top of the hill and lifts up his staff. This is the same staff with which he struck struck Egypt with judgment. This is the staff with which he struck God in 17.6 as a sign that God himself would take the judgment his people deserve. Now this staff is lifted up against the Amalekites. But it moves us to think about another hill and another man with his hands outstretched and another story of judgment. In Exodus 17, God's people are liberated through the judgment of God. Their enemies are defeated. Moses spreads out his hands to dispense judgment. You can surely see the connections. At the cross, God's people are liberated through the judgment of God. Our enemies were defeated. But there's a huge and important difference. Jesus spread out his hands to receive judgment. And in doing so, he was the ultimate mediator whose work secures victory for God's people. That's what this story is pointing us to. It's pointing us to Jesus and it's reminding us that his victory on the cross can be our victory when we turn to him in faith. Moses is a shadow of the person who would later come. Jesus is the ultimate mediator whose work secures victory for God's people. The second thing we see in this section of Exodus is the mediator whose work invites outsiders to come in. The first half of Exodus 18 tells us about Jethro. He's a a priest of Midian and he's Moses' father-in-law and he has heard about what God has done. It seems that Moses' wife, Zipporah, has been sent away by Moses and has been living with her father and her two sons. Verses 2 to 4 give us that sense. We're not entirely sure why Moses and Zipporah live separately, but there's a family reunion in verse 5. And it frames the story of Exodus. Moses was called away from his family to liberate God's people. And now that liberation is complete, he is reunited with his family. Moses' sons are mentioned in verses 3 and 4, Gershom and Eliezer. Gershom means a foreigner here, and Eliezer means my God is helper. Moses explains that the name of his second son means the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. His His second son's name is a testimony to how God has worked in his life and in the nation of Israel. What happens in the rest of Exodus 18 is this Conversation between Moses and Jethro, and what happens is really quite amazing. Jethro comes to realize that God, Yahweh, is the only king, and he comes into the covenant community. In other words, Jethro is converted. There's an interesting comparison between him and the Amalekites. So in 17.8, the Amalekites came and attacked. In 18.5-7, Jethro came and greeted 
Both stories about the Amalekites and Jethro are about the impact of God's people on the nations, but the impact on each is very different. In verse 8, we're told that Moses told his father-in-law all the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. In doing this, Moses fulfilled God's purposes of raising up Pharaoh so that, so that his name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God outlined that purpose to Moses in Exodus 9.16. The, the, the word proclaimed in 9.16 is the same word that, that's used in 18.8. That this is what mission is. The people of God proclaiming or telling in all the earth everything that God has done. A number of times God says that people will know that he is the Lord as a result of the exodus. That same word is used by Jethro here. Jethro knows the Lord because the Lord rescued his people from the Egyptians. In verse 11, he says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. God rescued Israel from Egypt so that his name might be proclaimed among the nations. And that's what's happening. God rescued Israel from Egypt so that his name might be known among the nations. And that's what's happening. Jethro's response to all this is really quite incredible. Verse 9 tells us, And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel. What is the, what is the result of God's name being made known to the nations? Verse 12, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The nations are brought together by a sacrifice to eat a meal in the presence of God. We shouldn't rush past this moment, distant as it may seem. This is the climax of the Exodus. So far in the story, we've read about people treading on holy ground. We've had spectacular plagues of blood, frogs, gnats, and hail. We've seen the death of every firstborn Egyptian. We've had pillars of cloud and fire connecting earth and sky. We've seen a road through the sea with walls of water on either side. We've had manna appearing from heaven. But the climax of all of this astonishing drama is a meal. A meal in the presence of God to which the nations are invited. Jethro is an unlikely candidate for conversion. He was immersed in pagan religion, yet he comes to know that God is the only king. Again, it's hard to miss the connections. The exodus is a pointer to a greater exodus, a greater act of deliverance from sin and death through the death and resurrection of God's own son. And the climax of that great exodus is an eternal banquet. People from every nation will be brought together by the blood of Christ to eat in the presence of God. Through Moses the mediator, God invites outsiders to come in. Through the ultimate mediator, the Lord Jesus, God invites outsiders to come to know him forever. Jesus once said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jethro's story reminds us that there's room at the table for anyone who will acknowledge God as king. Exodus 17 and 18 tell us about the mediator whose work secures victory for God's people. It tells us about the mediator whose work invites outsiders to come in. And finally, it tells us about the mediator whose work divides people into two camps. We've hinted already at the differences between the Amalekites and Jethro, but we need to tease it out a little bit more. The Amalekites and Jethro fall into two camps, spiritually speaking. They see God at work 
and they respond in two very different ways. We've talked about what happens with Jethro, but what happens to the Amalekites? Well, we know that Joshua and his army defeat them, but look at how the story of the battle is explained in verses 14 to 16. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called, called the, name of the, the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. With victory secured, Moses builds an altar. He calls the altar, the Lord is my banner. Now, we know that a banner or a standard is something that soldiers look to in battle. It was a rallying point, the sign by which an army stood firm. The banner that Israel looked, at, looked to was held by Moses on the hill. The banner was God himself. On this side of the cross, God in Christ is our rallying point, our standard, our sign of victory. The beginning of verse 16 is important for us, though, because in this final point, it gives us the sense of the posture of the hearts of the Amalekites. We read, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The point is that it wasn't Moses who first lifted up his hands. The Amalekites initiated, initiated the conflict. They lifted up their hands against Israel, and only then did God respond with his own uplifted hand. And importantly, Moses doesn't say the Amalekites lifted up their hands against Israel. Their hands are lifted up against the Lord. In other words, by opposing Israel, it was God they were fighting. The sobering lesson is that when we lift up our hands against the throne of the Lord, he lifts up his hands against us. And God doesn't bring his hands down until his judgment is complete. The Amalekites are wiped out in the battle they're not wiped out completely. That doesn't happen until the time of Esther. But their story is a reminder of the judgment that will come on all those who oppose the Lord. M Moses is the mediator whose work divides people into two camps. Jethro responds in faith. The Amalekites respond by taking up arms, by, by defiantly taking on the Lord. Jethro comes to God through the mediator. The Amalekites reject the mediator and therefore reject the Lord. The result for Jethro is that he enjoys a meal in the presence of God. The result for the Amalekites is that they're overwhelmed and eventually wiped out. In our series on Exodus, we've been saying that this book is the gospel in the Old Testament, and we see that so clearly this morning. Exodus 17 and 18 tells us about Moses, the mediator whose work secures victory for God's people, it tells us about Moses, the mediator, whose work invites outsiders to come in. And it tells us about Moses, the mediator, whose work divides people into two camps. But it's pointing us forward to Jesus as well. And ultimately, the relevance of this story for us is that our eternal destiny hangs on what we do with Jesus. The gospel tells us that the separation between God and man is far too terrible to be solved by those who caused it. That means that we can't sort it ourselves. We can't navigate or negotiate our way back into God's good books. We need someone who is willing and able to represent us before God, to plead our case on our behalf. We need a mediator. And Jesus is that person. He is the one mediator between God and man. He is the mediator of the new covenant 
whose work on the cross secures victory for God's people. The cross is the only way that our sins can be fully and finally dealt with. He is the mediator whose work invites outsiders to come in. Those who are naturally his enemies are welcomed with open arms. And he is the mediator whose work divides people into two camps. There's no middle ground when it comes to who you said Jesus is. Either he is your saviour and your Lord, or he is not. I came across a quote this week from a Christian writer called Ligon Duncan. He's written a book called Fear Not, which is an examination of death and the afterlife from a Christian perspective. Towards the end of the book, Ligon Duncan offers a final reflection on the difference between heaven and hell. Listen to what he writes. He says, Hell is eternity in the presence of God without a mediator. Heaven is eternity in the presence of God with a mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hell is eternity in the presence of God without a mediator. Heaven is eternity in the presence of God with a mediator, with Jesus. That, that, that's ultimately why this story is relevant to us. It reminds us of the importance of trusting in the mediator, the mediator who secures, invites, and divides. Jesus stands between us, the convicts, and God, the judge, to plead our case, to insist upon our innocence, and to demand that he has already paid our ransom. Do you know him this morning? Are you trusting in the mediator? Or are you rejecting him? Are you really willing to risk going into eternity without trusting in the only mediator between God and man? Jethro gives us an example of someone who responds in faith. The Amalekites tell us that if we reject God, if we, if we take up arms against the Lord, if we, if we fight against him, will be overwhelmed in judgment. Exodus 17 and 18 says, don't be so foolish. Don't think that you'll just be all right. It calls you to come to Christ, to, to come to the mediator whose work secures victory for God's people, to the mediator whose work invites outsiders to come in, and to come to the mediator whose work divides people into two camps. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have provided a mediator for us. We confess that our sin is too great for us to deal with. We thank you that you've sent Jesus to die on our behalf and to mediate for us, to stand in the gap so that we might know you. We thank you that when we trust in him, his death on the cross secures our victory. We thank you that he invites outsiders like us to come to him but we realize that the solemn truth that his work also divides people into two camps, those who know him and those who don't. And Father, we pray that you would speak this morning to those who don't know the mediator, who aren't trusting in the mediator, that they might come to trust in him for the first time today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.